Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Hey everyone, we've got an important topic to talk about today in light of Tuesday's upcoming presidential election. Normally we put out this podcast on Sundays, but I thought I would release this one a little early, today being Friday, because it's likely that this weekend many American Christians will be talking politics with family and friends, as well as jumping on their social networks to advocate for their perspectives as we come down to the wire between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I have a serious concern about how we as Christians portray ourselves in such conversations. As pretty much everyone agrees, in this election cycle, American political discourse has sunk to a new low. Rather than presenting facts and offering persuasive arguments based on policies, we've seen a whole slew of false claims and personal attacks. The exchanges between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have been so caustic and shameful that when I discovered my 10-year-old was watching one of the presidential debates with his mom, instead of being excited for his political engagement or his curiosity about how adults make decisions in the big world, I immediately ushered him out of the room, muttering that such language and behavior that he was witnessing was inappropriate for him to see. You see, he had weaseled his way in to watch it on the excuse that he couldn't sleep. What does it say about the way politics works itself out on national TV that I, as a parent, felt horrified that my son was exposed to such bickering and animosity among those who are vying for the highest and noblest governmental office in the land? I could deal with all this, though. But what I can't handle is the fact that We as Christians don't seem to carry ourselves any differently than our worldly counterparts. Social media channels and email boxes overflow with vitriol and exaggeration as each side shouts ever louder, trying to drown out the sound of the other. In this episode of Offscript, we offer some suggestions on how to think and behave when engaging in political discourse as Christians. We begin by discussing an episode of This American Life, Ira Glass's podcast called Seriously, in which he addressed how misinformation and lies dominate political conversations. If you're interested in hearing what it is we're talking about, listen to the first 20 minutes of that podcast to hear the part we discuss. Also, we bring up Justin Brierley's podcast, Unbelievable, in particular the episode called Should Christians Vote for Trump, where Republican John Smirak and Democrat Christina Reese discuss what Christians should do. For Smirak's dead moose comment, you'll know what I mean soon enough, skip to 18 minutes in if you want to hear the context surrounding that statement. I hope you're intrigued, and I hope that this episode will serve to help you to engage in a in a godly manner because in the end we all represent christ those of us who carry his name and we want to represent him well so here now is off script episode 16 christians discussing politics welcome to off script everyone we're so glad to talk about the important subject of politics today 
And I, for one, am just going to start by saying, first of all, this is a terrifying topic of conversation (laughs) 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 because it's so polarizing. And it's hard to know what to say that won't get me in trouble or make you angry at me, dear listener. But at the same time, the kind of discourse we have among Christians in this particular election cycle is something that I feel really needs to be addressed. And we're not going to be recommending a particular candidate here. So if you're worried about that, just take a sigh of relief. (laughs) But we do want to talk honestly about a Christian view of politics and have at least something to say in light of what's coming up very shortly in the 2016 election. So having said that, where do you guys think we should get started? Talking about a general framework for how Christians should engage in politics is a good starting point. If Christians should engage in politics, how? You know, I think that's in broad terms what we're talking about. But I don't necessarily want this conversation to sort of legislate whether or not like those hard and fast sort of rules, because like other topics we discuss, I think there's a range of engagement options. There's always a bedrock of what the Bible says about these different things. But in terms of whether or not Christians should engage in politics, I think it's a personal decision. It's the, what, what it comes down to is how you engage in politics and the discourse yeah. that you engage in. One of the issues that I see is this whole thing that was brought up in the uh, podcast that you recommended, Dan, the This American Life, which apparently is the biggest podcast in America. Oh, it's huge. I'm surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't know about it. Well, I knew about it. I just I wasn't a listener of it. So I listened to their episode called Seriously, which is a bad title, I think, because it's sort of not describing anything. So I want to criticize that <laughs> uh, before I compliment Ira Glass on the job he did f- with this episode. And that is, he talked about the discourse, this political cycle, with respect to facts and opinions. And he brought up several issues related to Barack Obama. And he did it in the context of interviewing his uncle Lenny, who's a retired plastic surgeon. He asked him, you know, what do you think about this and that? And Lenny said... I think Obama, and this is a quote from this episode, I think Obama is an intelligent man who has never done anything worthwhile in his life. <laughs> that's, that's such an astounding... Uh, <laughs> Two terms in the White House. Right, it's right, such an like astounding, becoming president The is, first black president, right. it's, it's just astounding. And not that, you know, I'm an Obama supporter, but to say that that man hasn't done anything worthwhile is... It seems a, a little ri- A ridiculous statement. Right. An absolutely ridiculous statement. He goes on to say that Obama has played more rounds of golf than any president in history, at which point Ira Glass says that Dwight Eisenhower played three times more golf and Woodrow Wilson played four times more golf. Like you said, the point here is not to prop up Obama as the greatest American president of all time. That's certainly not what I intend to do. The point is facts versus opinion. And if you make a claim about how often somebody played golf, that's checkable. And that was really the point of his episode is that it within all of the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump debates and rhetoric that has flown around in the mud that has been slung, there are tons of false claims 
and let's just say it, lies that we can easily check. Any of us with a smartphone can whip it out of our pocket and look up a fact to see if it's true or not. Yeah. That, to him, and to me as well, is very disconcerting because if you can't be sure that whatever your news source is gives you the facts, then where are you left with political discourse? It's just like you have... Shouting match. Yeah, it's a shouting match, and, it, and it's all about ad hominem. It's all about attacking the person. And as a Christian, as a pastor, I don't see a difference between how Christians talk about this subject and how non-Christians talk about this subject, and that is a concern to me. I would hope that Christians would have a higher standard about telling the truth. I mean, this is a big part of our morality. Mm-hmm. I know Christians on either side of the partisan divide, and that's not really the issue. The issue is having an objectively factual case is no longer something you can take for granted. Mm-hmm. In that episode, he also mentioned many people will come out and say that, the, in their view, facts are partisan. If it's really the truth, it's never going to be partisan. You could maybe use that uh, you know, to bolster a point of your party and use it to support a partisan platform. But the truth is never going to be partisan. It may just simply be something you don't like. So you're slapping that label on it and then disregarding truth. It gets dangerous. And then also with these politicians, that's evidence to their ethics, the disregard for truth. And that raises genuine concerns about uh, the performance in office. If they're going to continue um, with those same ethics, we have reason for concern. What's taken people aback in this election cycle is just the sheer brazenness of some of the lies and some of the half-truths and some of the sort of ways that these narratives get concocted against, you know, one opponent against another. And I think it's also a symptom of, you know, this sort of postmodernist world that we live in where there's a sense that there isn't an objective truth, that my truth is yeah. is native to me, your truth is native to you, we can disagree. But it goes further than that because there's this undercurrent of nastiness because the partisan divide is so wide mm-hmm. that takes this sort of postmodernist framework of the truth being completely relative to levels that in political discourse that we haven't seen where people feel it's okay to disagree with facts because they're covered by this idea that my truth is different than your truth and that's okay. In this election in particular, that gets taken a step further when you add in the partisanship inherent in elections where not only is my truth my truth, but my truth is over and above your truth for this reason. And it just devolves into, as Ira Glass pointed out in in the episode of where facts just do not matter. what do you think about the immigration discussion? Yeah, that was where there's this idea of immigrants are pouring into the country, whereas the facts say that immigration has remained flat. There's the amount of people coming in is offset by the amount of people going out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Since the recession. If you're interested in this, go ahead and listen to it. It's it's worth your time, at least the first 20 minutes or so, where he is talking about this facts versus opinions business. He says 350,000 immigrants, illegal immigrants, have come into America this year, and that 350,000 have left, and that that's been basically the case since 2009. But from 2007 to 2009... America lost illegal immigrants because there were fewer jobs here for them. And yet immigration is this huge issue, this election cycle, as if it's a main problem. And 
you know, he didn't touch on any of the terrorist concerns that people have with immigration. He's just looking at the sheer number of it. Obviously, Glass is coming from a, a left position. Certainly. Any, anyhow, so we have to keep that in mind. But I, I just want to know what is true and what is false. And you I thought know? it was a great point the source made in the podcast that Obama's deported more immigrants than any other Right, 2.5 million mm. any other president. That does seem like a partisan fact to people on the right. Yeah, but if like you're on the right and you read that, you're like, oh man, we can't have this. That doesn't line up with our thinking and our narrative. And what do you do with that information? You sort of push it to the side and ignore it. Oh, well, that may be true, but Obama played more he's rounds of golf. than Yeah, he's a Muslim <laughs> yeah. or he plays yeah, more Muslim. rounds of golf. It, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it goes from, it ricochets from one sort of crazy idea to another. He wasn't born here. That's the problem. He wasn't born here. And so it's like, I mean, here's my issue. Again, and we'll move on to another subject in just a moment here. But my issue is the claims masquerading as facts can't be trusted in public discourse anymore. And that deeply troubles me. And not like this has never happened before, but not to this degree, I don't think. At least not in American politics. Well, in the early part of the last century, all the newspapers were owned by... You know, there were all these sort of... Robber barons? Yeah, robber barons who slanted their papers significantly. But you knew where their slant was coming from when you were reading this. The theory of objectivity and news reporting only came on the scene in the 19... maybe 40s? That's not where news got its start in, okay, we have to... just the facts, just the straight, what happened. That idea didn't come along until much later. It's so interesting because you would think that all this technology and all this information we have at our fingertips would lead to greater accountability and therefore greater veracity um, in politics. But right now, we're not seeing that at all. We're seeing bold-faced lies, despite the fact that they know we can fact-check them in 20 seconds. Right. Let's move on to the next issue, which I thought you brought up well, Dan, when you said the nastiness. There is an, a level of nastiness on both sides of, the, you know, certainly the candidates, but also the supporters and I'm not here to judge how non-Christians carry on in this land. I mean, it's just so far out of my purview, it's not even funny. But I do really care how my own people, the tribe that I name myself a part of, Christians, Mm -hmm. how we carry ourselves. And this quote comes from an unbelievable episode. Unbelievable is a radio show out of London by Justin Brierley, typically dealing with apologetics. He usually has a Christian and an atheist or a Christian and a non-Christian in the studio having discussions. But he did a special on the question of should Christians vote for Donald Trump? Of course, he's a Brit, so he's kind of out of his element here. But he got a Trump supporter and a Clinton supporter, and he had them argue it out and then had special interviews by uh, Christians on the left and the right in addition to that. And this is what this Catholic gentleman, uh, John Zmirak, who is the senior editor of stream.org political blog and the author of Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism, what he said. He said, I would vote for a dead moose strapped to the hood of a car in order to stop Hillary Clinton or really any of the Democrats in America because their policies are fundamentally incompatible with Christianity and really just with human decency. That seems nasty to me. I listened to that episode and I had to turn it off. Not that I had to turn it off, but I found myself turning it off because it didn't strike me as a conversation being had by two Christians. I also found it revealing that both sides, he said that Democratic values are incompatible with Christian values. 
and he gave his points. And then she gave the argument that uh, Republican values are incompatible with Christianity. And I found myself thinking, well, you're always going to run into a problem when you try to conform the political landscape with the Bible as opposed to the other way around. Right. And we're looking through a glass darkly at what's going on and people contort themselves or positions of people that they support into being compatible with different things, with their values, with the Bible. And you're always going to run into problems with that because there are things on both sides and in the middle that aren't compatible with the Bible. And you're never going to get around that. With that conversation, they had to pick their issues and they picked different degrees of importance to them. And I don't think anyone gave a strong endorsement of either candidate. It was a lesser of the evils conversation, but it was also a greater of the issues conversation. And that was driving um, the people that they were mostly reluctantly endorsing. Yeah, that's one thing that in my experience with this election that most people agree on that it's a lesser of two evils thing. That's Mm -hmm. the one common ground that I've heard on both sides. You know, why are you voting for Trump? Well, because he's not Hillary. Why are you voting for Hillary? Well, the alternative is Donald Trump. You know, that's something that I've Mm -hmm. heard repeatedly on, on both sides. Right. I don't think we'll have some sort of suggestion that's going to fix the whole system here today. But maybe tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, this nastiness issue, there is a level of respect that as Christians we're called to have. And saying the, the other person is worse than a dead moose strapped to a car hood is just unacceptable Christian discourse. Mm-hmm. We read in First Peter 3.15 that we are to have a defense for the hope that is within us, yet with gentleness and respect. And that's the kind of discourse that the Apostle Peter commanded the first century Christians who were being isolated and persecuted by not only the Jewish authorities, but the Roman authorities as well. And he said, look, stand up for your beliefs. Give people reasons for why you believe what you believe. But be careful Mm -hmm. that you do it in a gentle and respectful manner. And I think it's fine to get excited and passionate about what you believe in. But if you're a Christian, you're not free to just engage in attacking and nastiness and disrespectful ways of speaking. Look, Peter is writing during the reign of Nero, one of the worst Roman emperors of all time. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. And they both tell us to honor the emperor, to honor the king, and to give respect to whom respect is due. And in all likelihood, from the historical sources we have, they both ended up getting executed by the Roman government in Rome as part of Nero's persecution against the Christians. It's not like they give in and they stop preaching Jesus or they start worshiping the idols. You know, they don't do that. But at the same time, they do speak to the Roman nobles and the officials using their honorific titles. They don't say, oh, you're just a loser. I don't have to talk to you. No, they say your honor or most excellent or whatever the appropriate title would be. And this really goes into a whole nother issue, which is whoever wins this thing is then the president of the United States. And Mm -hmm. whoever that happens to be is someone that as Christians we're called to give due honor to. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean we have to say that they're good at their job. But it does mean that we carry ourselves in a respectful manner. And I feel like we've just failed as a community of faith in this regard. Yeah. John Zmirak in this podcast 
sort of went outside of, of the Christian paradigm and, and into the world's paradigm of discussing politics where, you know, there's hyperbole and there's insult and there's subtext. And it's not enough anymore in, in the world's paradigm of discussing politics to make good points and to stick by your convictions. Now the ante has been upped and you have to demean the opposing party and resort to ad hominem attacks that for listeners or your own sort of ego make you feel like you won, especially for a Christian to engage in, in that sort of way of, of talking about politics is not where we want to be as followers of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very divisive and ad hominem attacks that are that nasty are going to cause the other side to dismiss you and dismiss you quickly. Right. It does nothing to advance the conversation at all. Mm-hmm, right. And that is as far from the attitude we're supposed to have. I also am challenged by First Timothy 2, where Paul is writing and says, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. With that sort of mindset and that sort of prayerful approach towards those in power, we have no place to be saying that we would vote for roadkill over any candidate, regardless of how we might agree or disagree with them on certain issues. You look at Jesus with Pilate. How is he with Pilate? Does he say, you're a fraud, God's going to destroy you and all the rest? Look, God is going to judge Pilate, and Pilate was a jerk, and his political policies were horrible, if you read any history on Pilate. But Jesus, Jesus does not act like a pushover. He says to Pilate, he looks him in the eyes, and he says, you would have no power at all if it weren't given to you from above. That's a really interesting statement, because on the one hand, it says, Pilate, you're not as great as you think you are. Mm. And on the other hand, it says, but you do have power, and I respect it. Jesus doesn't challenge the legitimacy of Pilate's governorship. He doesn't challenge his policies. What he, what he does is he treats him with respect, but also doesn't just submit to whatever Pilate has to say. I mean, he sticks to his claim as the Messiah and everything else. Now, people will say, well, hold on a second, Sean. That was a special case. Jesus had to die for our sins, so that's not an example for us. But then in 1 Peter we read chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we look at Jesus on the cross, or we look at Jesus in his trials, what we see here is not just a one-off, not just someone who is in a special circumstance. Obviously, he's in a special circumstance. You're never going to die for the sins of the world. Jesus already did that. But in light of how he handled himself, he is our example to follow in his steps. And the Apostle Paul follows in his steps in all the different trials that he gets into in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And so we see it not just with Jesus, Paul, and Peter, but with other Christians in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, until Christianity gets into power and moves from the persecuted to the persecutor. Mm. And that might be beyond the scope of this conversation. But my point is, I don't think we can take the Bible as our guide to life in every other area of life. But then when it comes to talking politics on Facebook or down at the water cooler mm. or with your friends, suddenly now the Bible's irrelevant because that pertain to a different kind of government. Look, 
that is a different government, but it's a worse government. And if they treated him in such a respectful way there, then how much more so should we watch how we speak? Mm-hmm. You can still make your points. You can still say what you want to say. If you think Donald Trump's immigration policy is bad, you can still say that. If you think Hillary Clinton's abortion policy is bad, you can still say that. You don't have to call him a dead moose. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ridiculous. And I also think in engaging in, in a Christian way of talking about politics, you kind of set yourself apart because there is all this rhetoric. And if you can be mature about discussing these things and make your points and listen to people and, and you know, just have a normal conversation about the election without <laughs> without <laughs> resorting to these like... You're asking a lot. Cra- <laughs> I know, without resorting to these crazy sort of leaps of logic, ignoring facts and attacking people and just all the general nastiness. I think people would look at that and be like, wow, that was a refreshing conversation about the election because we're still friends and I don't think that guy's a jerk. And then maybe that person will want to know more about this. So why, why aren't you going along with, with how everybody talks about these things? Like what is different about yeah. the way that you talk about it? And you can make them wonder. And that, you know, that goes for politics. That goes for anything in life. That's one of the best ways that Christians identify themselves is by sort of not acting the way that everybody else acts. And you can totally do that in politics. If you can keep your friends and earn people's respect uh, with civility and with kindness and with humility um, in speaking about these things, instead of being brash and offensive and dismissive and insulting and, and, um, and labeling other people as partisan, I think you will stand out and I think you will represent Christ well. And you also have to make a calculation whenever you have these conversations is what is the profit? I have yet to change somebody's mind about politics, and I've had a lot of conversations about politics, despite not particularly enjoying politics, but never once have I walked away and been like, wow, you know, what I said really changed that person's view of what we're talking about. And the reverse is the same. I don't feel changed by any, you know, I can't point to a conversation or a person in my life who's changed my inclinations when it comes to politics so what's the trade-off are you going to lose a brother or a sister or a potential brother and sister because you want to make your point in a way that's offensive it's just not worth it well there are lots lots of fear tactics too i actually got this as an email if obama gets elected then the muslims are going to come to america and cut off our heads that is what this person said to me Mm. and you know what eight years later my head is Sean's still checking his head. my head is still attached to my body and the sky has not fallen and yeah the the names and the places have changed but it's not like he was the single antichrist I mean actually people said that to me too yeah. that oh, Obama yeah. is the antichrist mm-hmm. you know and the next episode the very next episode of this American life actually touched on that it was in the same vein as the seriously episode, but it talked about in the Midwest how there was this deep-seated belief that the more Muslims come into the country, they're going to institute Sharia law, and these people actually believed that there was Sharia law in effect in Dearborn, Michigan, and this was like a significant belief that people in the middle of the country had, and the reporter sort of debunked that, that no, there's not Sharia law in middle America. And I guess, you know, for us on the East Coast, not to sound elitist, but that sounds just like an insane idea that there would be any law, but, you know, the law of the land in the U.S. But I don't think people that hold those beliefs about, you know, Muslims chopping off heads, I don't think that they're 
lying to themselves that they're like, oh, I'm going to believe this because it'll further my political cause. I, th I think they truly, in a lot of cases, think these things that they think, mm -hmm. their beliefs that they hold. And the point of the episode in This American Life was, was saying, you know, where do these beliefs come from? You know, and it sort of traced it back to years prior to the episode actually airing or being reported and just people believing bad information and, mm -hmm. you know, campaigns of disinformation going on behind the scenes for whatever political cause that just metastasized into this belief that there's Sharia law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's not good to use fear tactics because it shortcuts the logic that we could use otherwise to weigh things out mm -hmm. and weigh policies out. But anyhow, another issue that relates to this whole subject from a Christian perspective, once again, is it's easy for us as Christians with our book that we love to think that we know better than anyone else how to run a country or how to run a state or how to run a city. And I understand why we think that. <laughs> but the simple fact is, our God, the way he set things up in his book, is based on free will and based on people freely choosing to be part of his family. And when it comes to legislating how everyone in a society should live, God never did that. With Israel, he did it with just his people. He didn't set a law for all the other countries in the world, and he didn't make Israel into an empire-building state. It was a fairly small country, if you, mm -hmm. if you look at it on a map, and it still is to this day. And then when Christianity came along and Gentiles were grafted in, and this whole movement went from a national movement to an international movement, and it no longer was based on the borders and the laws of ancient Israel, but it was based on the New Covenant and the missionary effort, then you don't have this idea, we need to tell the world how to live like you have in Islam. Mm -hmm. They do have that as an idea. Mm -hmm. That, you know, like you said with Sharia, like they have a system of law and they do want to impose on as many places as possible. Now, here's the problem with Christianity. We forget all the failed attempts before now. Mm. The first Christian empire was the Byzantine Empire. If we date the Byzantine Empire from the founding of Byzantium, which, which is called Constantinople by the very humble Christian emperor, Constantine, <laughs> just kidding. You look at the Byzantine Empire, and I encourage you to research that first Christian empire. Once the Roman Empire became Christian, it was called the Byzantine Empire. And it lasted for hundreds of years, and it was an awful time. We did not have great wisdom in running a kingdom of this world more than any other empire before or after us. And I encourage you to listen to, if you want a podcast on this, this was one of the most famous early podcasts ever, was The Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Excellent podcast. And he's not a Christian at all, but he... Well, I don't know if he's a Christian, but he's not approaching it from a Christian perspective. He's just doing it from a historic... And he likes, he likes the Byzantine rulers. And still, you hear all this dysfunction. And a lot of it's caused by Christians fighting with Christians. And then, what do we have in the Middle Ages? Well, a lot of people like to call the Middle Ages not the Light Ages, but the Dark Ages. And that's when Christians were in power in the West. The right? Crusades. And you had the Crusades. <laughs> you had the Inquisitions. At the end of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, what do you have? The Protestant Reformation. 
after the Protestant Reformation gets started, we have what's called the Thirty Years' War, where Protestants and Catholics killed each other so savagely and for such a long time that people were exhausted with the idea of religion at all. And you have the first atheists in droves coming into Europe because of Christians treating other Christians a certain way and carving up. Now, obviously, there were, there were political concerns throughout all of this, and a lot of times mm -hmm. religion gets co-opted by the state to convince people to go along with it. I'm not trying to be naive here, but I am saying that every time we've gotten in power as Christians, or at least many times we've gotten in power as Christians, it has not produced a utopia. Mm. It hasn't. I mean, when was America most Christian? When it had slaves and it was killing the natives. Mm. That's when America was the most Christian. When 99.999 whatever percent of people living in this land were Christians, it, we had the brutality of slavery and, and the massacre of the Native Americans. So I think we need to take a little lesson from the past and be a little more humble and say, look, our God and our scriptures don't give us an inside track on how to run a kingdom of this world any better than anyone else. Mm. We know what God says is right and what God says is wrong, but when people aren't in a free will covenant with God, forcing them or, or making laws and all this, we're not any better at it than anyone else. I know that sounds shocking to some of you, and I'll probably get <laughs> feedback on that that, I don't know, that I'm apolitical or whatever. Whatever. Bring it. My point is that if you look at it historically, we don't have a good track record. We have the Salem Witch Trials. That, where did that come from? Christians in power making laws and carrying it out and persecuting people. You look at Europe. Europe practically killed Christianity by Christianity being in power. How did that work? I love the pluralist state. I love it that we have in America where it says you don't have to be an Episcopalian to be in government. They could have done it that way. They could have said you had to be a Puritan in order to be in the government. I mean, there were all these wars in England over this very issue. Mm -hmm. Oliver Cromwell, all this. In fact, the reason why people came to this land from Europe is because they were tired of the, the fighting there. And they're like, well, let's just start a new country. Mm. <laughs> well, maybe not start a new country, but let's find a new place where we can live, where we can run things our way. So, I don't know, I think we need to be a little humble here and, and stop saying, take America back for God and all this kind of thing. You know what we need to take back for God? We need to take the church back for God. Mm -hmm. We need a revival in the church where the church stands up. We need to be the church. We need to be the body of Christ. We need to reach out and, and love our neighbors as ourselves because that's, that's what we stink at. You know, we get so focused on telling non-Christians what laws should govern their lives that we, we forget the fact that we're supposed to testify to a reality that is supposed to be beautiful and attractive, mm. and we've become ugly. Mm -hmm. so I'm preaching over here. but So well <laughs> said, Sean. Um, and it's good to look, certainly very good to look at history, and there's a lot of sobering examples that we have. Also, though, it is very critical um, that we protect uh, the purity and the integrity of our church and of our Christianity. And I think when you have something as often as corrupt as government, why would you want to open yourself up to that vulnerability to roll the two into one again and again? The corruption has come and taken over and has defiled 
well, should have been a pure, spotless bride, the Church of Christ. Um, but when you open it up to government, which is so inherently corrupt um, because of the nature of man, it's like a disease um, that comes comes over. It's like gangrene spreading. Why would you want to open yourself up to that? Well, that's all we have time for today. Well, as always, thank you for listening. We certainly appreciate feedback, and I think this episode might garner more than usual. Hopefully, uh, discourse is good. But as we said in the podcast, you know, let's keep it respectful. We're all brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And uh, on November 8th, it'll, it'll be a mute point for at least another couple uh-huh. months before the 2020 cycle starts up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if I already said this or not. I definitely don't know everything. I get it wrong sometimes. So please, and I'm sure you guys also feel that way. So, so please feel free to engage and correct us. If you have a legitimate case to make and you have some facts to point out, point them out. Yeah, I want to be open. I want to be humble enough to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. Yeah, again, please uh, feel free to leave comments. Feel free to join the discussion. Um, Do it respectfully. Please do it humbly. Uh, Represent Christ. Um, We love you guys. Arriva Durchi. There's nothing else I can't. She's used all the languages in the world. What about Pig Latin? Yay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. Before I end this episode, I just wanted to read out some feedback that we've been receiving. First up, we got another review in iTunes. Yay! This is really the best way, or at least that's what I've heard. This is really the best way, other than maybe sharing episodes on social media, to help get the word out about this podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you, SJG underscore 77, whoever you are, for writing this. Restitutio is an excellent podcast that explores what it means to believe in and live out authentic Christianity. With the insight of a gifted theologian, Sean Finnegan tackles a diverse range of topics, including the historical origins of Christianity, the nuts and bolts of Christian apologetics, and the challenge of following Christ in today's culture. He also boldly examines traditional church doctrine in light of Scripture to discern the authentic Christian faith of the first century church. Sean and his frequent panelists, Dan and Rose, create the relaxed atmosphere of a discussion among friends as they bring razor-sharp biblical wisdom to bear on the issue at hand. This show is well worth your time. Well, thank you so much, SJG underscore 77, for those glowing and kind words. I really appreciate you taking the time to navigate iTunes and get that in there. Next up, we have a comment on interview number seven, An Analytic Philosopher Unleashes Logic on the Trinity with Dale Tuggy from Mark Schering from Australia, who says, Thanks plenty, Sean. I've been listening for a while to podcasts from both yourself and Dale, encouraging and a great help to working through the problems of Trinitarian logic. Spiritually refreshing to move away from the inconsistencies of Trinitarianism to a view with greater consistency both internally and with the scriptural witness. I have learned much. Thank you so much, Mark. And if you haven't yet listened to that episode, it is a bit technical, but well worth your time because Dale Tuckey is really a top-notch scholar. When it comes to discussing the doctrine of the Trinity, he literally wrote the encyclopedia entry for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online. And when he speaks on this subject, he speaks with a clarity that one rarely finds scholars employing when they discuss this very confusing topic.
Thanks so much, Mark. I'm glad to hear the podcast is down under. I would attempt an Australian accent, but whenever I try an Australian accent, it sounds British. And whenever I try to do a British accent, it sounds Australian. And I'm not smart enough to tell the difference. And so we're going to we're gonna skip to a man from France, John Bainbridge, who commented on podcast episode 55, which is part of the apologetics class I've been putting out. It's actually part six of the apologetics class, The Historical Jesus. And John writes, Thanks for the podcast, also for the accessible and well-structured content on this episode. Question on Papias. Should we really ascribe to Papias a great deal of reliability because of his oral history sources? His account of the death of Judas and the parable of the grapes seem unlikely. Furthermore, as you conceded, there is an issue with the so-called Matthew Gospel. I suspect a different text entirely given the title Sayings, in which case not much of a concession there, just an underlining of the problem of authorship of what we call Matthew. Finally, how do we square all these followers of the disciples being located somewhere accessible to Papias if they really did go and die in their alleged missionary destinations? Cheers, John from Marseille, France. John, thanks so much for engaging. As far as Papias is concerned, I would recommend the fine work of Richard Balkum on this subject called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, uh, a book so dense I've not yet been able to make it all the way through, but I've, I've gotten well over 100 pages in, and a lot of what he does is deal with Papias and the reliability related to this early Christian author from around the year 130, and Essentially, the point I'm going to make on Papias that I, I think I made in that episode as well is that Papias doesn't trust written sources as much as oral sources because you can ask oral sources questions. And Papias is very much aware that people can exaggerate, people can make stuff up. And for that reason, he wants to interview them directly. He doesn't want to go by third hand and fourth hand hearsay, he wants to go by primary witnesses and secondary witnesses. In other words, what Papias is looking for is, what did the disciples say? Did you know one of the disciples? What did the disciples say? So I, I don't think that matters necessarily where the disciples ended up. If somebody knew what they were saying earlier on, then that would work just fine. Papias is in a city with a major road running through it, a city of Hierapolis, and as a result, he did not travel widely, so far as we know. But as people passed through, especially Christians, he would find out and he would ask them questions. And so I think Papias is certainly someone that we should take seriously and weigh what he says against whatever other evidence we have. I don't have any problem at all with his Parable of the Grapes. I think it's awesome. I think so long as you realize it's a metaphor to, you know, it's exaggerated language. You know, obviously the grapes are not going to speak in the kingdom age and say, take me, bless the Lord through me. I, I don't think Papias was a moron. I know later Christians thought he was dumb, like Eusebius. But I think if you recognize prophetic hyperbole, then you'll be fine. I mean, what, what is he saying? He's saying something that's not really all that much different than Amos, the prophet, who talked about how the plowman would overtake the reaper. The guy's still gathering the harvest from the last year's crop, and he gets tapped on the shoulder by the 
plow driver saying, excuse me, I, I got to plow up this ground so we can plant seed for next year. And the guy says, well, I'm still harvesting. So bounteous is the crop. Well, whether that's literal or figurative doesn't really matter, honestly, right? I mean, what is Amos saying? He's painting a picture of the kingdom age in which there is incredible bounty, incredible abundance. And I see Papias in the same line as that. As far as the so-called Hebrew Matthew, I just don't really know much about that because so far as I know, there are no manuscripts of that document that are from before the Middle Ages. And I don't really have much to say on that, but it didn't seem that that was really your main point either. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate the time you take. Hopefully you're not flaming angry at me because you think I'm too conservative, too liberal, too political, too apolitical, too whatever. I assure you that I'm not infallible. And as a result, please be gentle (laughs) in the comments. Anyhow, we'll see you next time. And if you'd like to jump online and leave a comment, the website is restitudio.org. Go ahead and find the episode for today and leave a comment there. And if if you don't mind, please share this episode on Facebook, on Twitter, on whatever you use, because I'm really passionate about this message, and I really want it to get out there, whether it's me or somebody else or you, that's pointing this out to our fellow Christians that we do have a responsibility. The world is always looking at us and seeing how we engage. So let's do so in a way that honors Christ our Lord. Thank you for your attention, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.